This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Nicholas Reynolds. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Nicholas Reynolds was once the historian at the CIA Museum, a longtime CIA officer. He served as a Marine colonel and is an Oxford-trained historian. He is author of the new book, Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy. It's published by William Morrow. It's about Ernest Hemingway. The book explores American author Ernest Hemingway's involvement in World War II-era intelligence work. And to cut to the chase, he finds that Hemingway spied on behalf of America, but was also recruited by Soviet spies. Quite a story. I'd like to start as you start the book with, you know, not the direct evidence of his spying, but uh, Hemingway in the late 1930s uh, took part uh, as a journalist and sort of as a participant in the Spanish Civil War. And again, maybe I'm doing too much cutting to the chase here. It seems that your thought is that's where, in the Spanish Civil War, he came to admire uh, the Soviet Union for its discipline. Uh, absolutely. He, in the Spanish Civil War, he, he became a committed anti-fascist. Uh, he was called a true believer by the, the chief of station uh, for the NKVD in Spain, uh, which I thought was um, the pot calling the kettle black, since, mm-hmm. uh, since the, uh, the chief of station himself was a true believer, but in a different cause. He, uh, he was a Bolshevik, and Hemingway was an anti-fascist. But uh, Hemingway very much identified with, first, the anti-fascist Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, They were the people who fought for the Republic uh, there against the Nationalists. Um, And secondly, he very much appreciated, admired the Soviets for supporting that cause, the anti-fascist cause, um, something that he was very frustrated to find that the U.S., France, and Britain did not really support. Uh, they, they gave, uh, there, were, there were bits and pieces of support, but mostly uh, in the U.S. the policy was neutrality. Uh, in Europe it was, uh, in France and Britain, it was very uh, ambivalent. Uh, some days they they sounded uh, like they believed in neutrality. Some days they seemed to favor the nationalists, the bad guys, uh, from Hemingway's point of view. Uh, and so uh, he felt that the only people who were really fighting uh, energetically on the same side as he uh, were the Soviets. So uh, that's that's kind of the root mm-hmm. of his his attraction to the Soviets. Uh, but you do point out that uh, the Soviets did uh, support uh, the cause in Spain, but at the end, you say they, they even took the gold from the the Spanish government. That's right. They uh, they took the gold quote for safekeeping to Moscow, uh, the gold reserves of the Spanish Republic, and uh, Stalin said that the Span the Spaniards will see their gold again when the wolf sees his ears. Uh, <laughs> So I think uh, you, you, my Hemingway would not share what I share the point of view I'm about to um, express, but um, the um, 
um, <clears throat> the Soviets supported the republic in one sense, but in another sense, they also under, undermined it, uh, as you can see from this example of, of taking their gold reserves for safekeeping. So, uh, you know, historians today look back on the Soviet role in the Spanish Republic and go, uh, well, you know, um, maybe that wasn't all so great. And, and George Orwell, of course, in his in wonderful book, uh, Amish to Catalonia, mm-hmm. sees the Soviets as, as um, a kind of evil conspirators behind the scenes who, by trying to impose revolutionary discipline on the Spanish Republic, are in fact undermining it. <clears throat> Now, in a few years after the Spanish Civil War, World War II breaks out, and the Hemingway family uh, gets involved or wants to get involved in espionage, not just uh, Ernest Hemingway. In fact, you say in terms of actually being an on-the-ground spy, Hemingway's son uh, did that, did he not? That's correct. So uh, if you you go back a, a couple of steps to to the history of my research, um, what I found out was that OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the, the American spy agency or intelligence agency in World War II, had relations with three Hemingways. Uh, they had a relationship with Ernest. They had, uh, and that was a, a, a complicated relationship that I explore in my book, they had a uh, uncomplicated relationship with his son, who was, uh, you know, a, a, an officer on their roles, who, who was a fully paid-up member. And then there was Hemingway's brother, who's about 15 years younger, Lester. Uh, and Lester tried to sign up with OSS. And uh, as far as I can tell from uh, the incomplete evidence that is available, uh, Ernest shot it down. Ernest said, so Lester... Uh, Lester had a wife and two kids, and Ernest Ernest had, at this point, uh, two or three wives, depending on the exact timing, uh, and and uh, three kids. And Ernest says, "You can't go off to war. Uh, you know your place is at home with the with the wife and kids." So poor Lester winds up with a job in Washington, and ultimately Ernest gets to do what he considers to be pretty sexy stuff. Uh, hunting for German submarines in the Caribbean, and then going off to war in Europe uh, and winding up working with the OSS in, in an unofficial capacity mm-hmm. outside Paris. Now, uh, Hemingway's, Ernest Hemingway's son, though, is in the OSS. He's what, parachuted into France uh, and works on the ground for a while. Ultimately, he's captured and is held Correct. by the Nazis to the end of the war. Correct, and uh, it's, it's it's actually a great story in itself. Uh, the so Jack Bumby um, initially goes to goes overseas as an MP platoon commander, military policeman, and his job is kind of rear area security. And he, he being a good Hemingway boy, he's he's saying to himself, "Boy, there must be something more to war than this." And one of the camps that he's inspecting it has. Uh, to, to make sure that they, you know, the guards are set right and the, the wire is in the right place, all the sort of physical security things that a, a, an MP might look at. And he notices they've got terrific food. And, uh, you know, unlike the others, which are just rehydrated eggs, uh, the other camps sort of rehydrated eggs and stale toast and whatnot, and this one has uh, gourmet food cooked by a French chef. And, and Hemingway says, what kind of outfit is this? 
and mm. and uh, he's uh, and they say, well, you have to join before we'll tell you. And he says, I'm there. So that's how he winds up joining the OSS. Uh, he does a, a in-service or in-theater transfer to the OSS, and then they offer him a chance to go to to jump into France. Uh, only one problem: he's not jump qualified. And so they say, we, you you can do one of two things: you can go through the parachute course uh, and then go on a later mission, uh, or you can go on the next mission. We got one coming right up. And, but uh, you'll be taking your chances on your first jump. And, and he says, that's for me. And, and he jumps with his fly fishing rod uh, in one hand and, and his war gear in another hand. And he's, he's, you know, when he lands, he lands fine. He, he's not injured at all. Other people are who are fully trained or injured when they, when they do this uh, parachute jump at the same time. But uh, Jack lands uh, fine and his rod is fine. And so in between fighting the Germans, he fly fishes in, um, in southern France. So, and, and yes, he ultimately winds up getting captured. Uh, the Germans figure out who he is, uh, and they treat him pretty well on, on account of that. Uh, in in uh, one case, one of his captors turns out to be the uh, lover of his former nanny in Austria, <laughs> when uh, the Hemingways went skiing in the uh, 20s. So um, it's, a, it's a wonderful, right. rich story, I think. Well, it is. But let's go back to Ernest's story. Sure. Uh, when, when war breaks out, he'd been living in Key West. At some point, he'd moved to Cuba. Uh, but in any event, he's out on the water a lot. And as you said a few minutes ago, he helped or, or tried to help the uh, anti-Nazi cause by using his boat, which I believe is called the Pilar, correct, to uh, search for German submarines. That's right, and and this is a this is not this is, this isn't just Ernest on his own. It sounds a little uh, sounds a little cockamamie from, um, from the 21st century perspective, but it was a this was this fits into the category of of the response that the U.S. had to when it entered the war and didn't have enough uh, big enough Navy to do all the patrolling on its own, it enlisted uh, civilian sailors to basically keep an eye out for German submarines, much like the Civil Air Patrol did uh, in, a, in a better known thing. And this, they were called the Hooligans Navy, and so if you had a cabin cruiser on the East Coast, you, you patrolled up and down the East Coast and kept your eye out for German submarines. Uh, Ernest wanted to take it one step further uh, and add, uh, after he spotted a German submarine, he would report it. Uh, he had a, a official radio gear, and the Office of Naval Intelligence gave him uh, a uh, U.S. Marine Ward officer to run that gear. Uh, and uh, Ernest said, well, look, we're going to spot them, and then we're going to attack them ourselves. So um, he's lucky. They did spot one submarine. Um, which was probably a German submarine, but luckily it was uh, steaming away from them because I think if Ernest uh, Ernest's 38-foot boat had attacked a 700-ton German submarine, uh, there's only one outcome, mm -hmm. and it would not have been good for Ernest. Now, eventually, Ernest does get over to the European theater. His by now wife of the time, who's also a journalist, she's there, and they both go with, I guess he tried to go as a spy or with the Office of uh, Strategic Services. But well, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, so so uh, his wife, Martha Gellhorn, 
thought Ernest should get out of Cuba. The war in the Caribbean was um, becoming less um, less active. Uh, the Germans were, were starting to lose and, and pulling back to other areas. Uh, and she said, hey, the big show's in Europe. Uh, why are you hanging around in Cuba? And she wanted to go to the big show, so she tried to, on her own, to go to OSS and say, why don't you sign Ernest up? Uh, OSS listened to her. They staffed it. It's a wonderful, uh, if you're a bureaucrat, which I think happens to be an honorable profession, uh, you can follow the, the, the document trail as Ernest's application makes it makes its way through um, OSS headquarters. But in the end, OSS turns him down. Uh, so he goes to Europe as a journalist. Uh, he takes Martha's, um, it's really Martha's beat. He, She works for Collier's or had worked for Collier's. And Ernest says, well, I'll be the Collier's guy. And then she arranges for him to fly to London on an RAF plane uh, and uh, when she tries to come with him, Ernest says, no, they don't take women on this plane. So uh, Martha has to go across on a European freighter that's loaded with dynamite. Uh, anyway, he gets to, uh, gets to London and then uh, gets to the continent, and that puts him outside Paris, where uh, he reaches, I'd say, the, the high point of his career as a wartime as an amateur wartime intelligence officer. Yeah, he's there for the liberation of Paris. That's correct. This is a this is the big adventure. Uh, I say he does a, a pretty good job. He he makes common cause with a senior OSS guy, David uh, David Bruce, and uh, what they do basically is run tactical intelligence operations outside Paris. Uh, what this means is running patrols uh, into the German lines. Uh, interrogating line crossers, uh, sending spies into German territory, and then debriefing them when they come back, uh, interrogating German prisoners. And Ernest comes up, Ernest takes this seriously, and he comes up with a, a, a pretty comprehensive picture of the German defenses and, and, and order of battle in the area that he's operating in. And that helps the Allies get to Paris with uh, minimal casualties. Whereby, you know, if if, it, if they had ignored Ernest and um, gone on another route, they might have faced a lot more opposition. So I'd say Ernest made a solid contribution to the liberation of Paris. And then he and others liberated the bar at the Ritz. Yeah, that's a famous story. Uh, it's told in in two or three um, two or. Th- Two or three sources. I, I particularly like David Bruce as a source because he was keeping a diary, and so it's not just a, a post-war story that somebody's telling. And oh yeah, let me tell you about Ernest, and and the story gets better every time. No, he wrote it down uh, while it was happening, and and Ernest and his entourage, um, the number something close to fifty at this point, uh, go into the bar at the Ritz and order um, martinis. Ernest orders martinis for them. Uh, David Bruce, who's something of an American aristocrat, say the martinis weren't very good. Um, but I would say any martini you get 
in a war zone uh, is probably really tasty. <laughs> All right. We're talking with uh, Nicholas Reynolds. We'll continue with the saga of Ernest Hemingway as a spy in just a moment. Uh, this is the Historian's Podcast. Uh, we depend on your help to keep the podcast going. I hope you uh, can see your way clear to giving to our GoFundMe campaign. Just go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017. It's a great way to give, and it's easy, and you you could do it right now or when you finish listening to the interview. But if you don't like to give online, uh, that kind of, you know, you're afraid somebody, the CIA maybe, will find out what you're doing, you could send me a donation uh, in the mail. Just make a check out to Bob Cudmore, send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much. Nicholas Reynolds is our guest, author of Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, about uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, mainly during World War II and his espionage work. We just heard about his work that he did uh, for the, uh, the Americans, if you will, and apparently he comes home uh, from Europe after the Battle of the Bulge. But it was earlier than that, in fact, it was, what, in 1941, that the uh, Soviet uh, spy agency, which at the time is apparently called NKVD, uh, they approach Hemingway. How, how did that happen? Uh, so this this grows out of uh, of his time in Spain, where, uh, as we we said earlier, he becomes a dedicated anti-fascist, mm-hmm. and he comes to admire the Soviets as the best anti-fascist team around. Uh, that's his point of view. I, I I might take a footnote on that. Um, anyway, the um, oh boy, my dogs are, are starting to bark. Let's see if I can get away from them. Okay. Um, so um, he uh, the the uh, he has he knows uh, Soviet intelligence officers, uh, and he knows a lot of Americans who are uh, involved who are who are communists or far left. Uh, who also knows Soviet intelligence officers. So one of these guys, uh, I've got a, a pretty educated guess on who it is, uh, winds up introducing him to one of the mainstays of Soviet espionage in the United States, um, a man named Jacob Golos. Um, Golos is a really interesting guy who um, basically is in charge of, if you, if you watch the, the TV show Americans, um, that, that's what Golos and, and his ilk are doing on a massive scale. Uh, the Soviets have an uh, espionage operation in the United States um, before uh, World War II that is just amazing. They've, they've penetrated the American government uh, up to the level of the White House, um, and they're looking for, they're looking for additional prominent uh, spies to um, include in their stable, mm-hmm. And that's how they they come upon Ernest. Uh, As a journalist, Hemingway would have been a good catch for them uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is a a journalist can go a lot of places that uh, a uh, somebody else can't, especially if you if you're Russian and you you have a a, a thick accent. Um, Ernest had great entree uh, up to the White House. And he can go around. He can ask questions. Um, sure, he's not turning over secret documents, microfilms, or or whatever. But uh, he can and and did 
um, he he can go to uh, ask President Roosevelt what his policy, you know, what he what he thinks of of uh, uh, of the Spanish Civil War. Um, so that's so it's it's kind of it's kind of soft intelligence, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's not the hard secrets from the Pentagon safe. But it's, um, you know, it can be very useful. President Roosevelt, in a private conversation, said uh, would be the kind of thing Ernest could uh, come up with. Uh, he also had great relations with the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, he routinely, you know, when he was in Spain, he would go to the American embassy and he'd talk to the ambassador. He was, a, he was the kind of guy whose, whose name got him uh, into a lot of places that other people couldn't get. So that's that's some one thing they wanted from him. Um, they could also use him as a surrogate uh, if they had an agent that they couldn't work directly or were were reluctant to work directly. Um, a, a guy like Ernest Hemingway having lunch with a, you know a, a senior government official that's a shoulder shrug. A mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think that's especially clear these days. Uh, with the, what's going on in the Trump administration, uh, whereas if somebody from the Russian embassy has lunch with um, the senior government official, everybody goes, "Well, what were you talking about?" Right. Um, right. So it, you know, it, it's kind of a general purpose. Well, they're they're looking at him as a guy who might be useful in a number of ways. But uh, it seems to me, and I don't mean to make a judgment about what you think. But it seems to me that what you're saying ultimately is that Hemingway wasn't reliable enough for this. He'd miss his meetings with his contact and and so forth. Well, um, that's a yes and no. Um, I think I think what my theory is that uh, Ernest has buyer's remorse very soon after he signs up with the NKVD. So the, the, the recruitment is, is a big deal. Uh, it's, like, it's like getting a signature on, you know, when you're selling your house, the potential buyer can come in any number of times, ask questions, um, you, you know, say mm-hmm. that he intends to buy the house. But the, 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 the crucial part of the transaction is, when he or she submits a written offer. So the recruitment meeting with Golos is an enormous deal where Hemingway says, yes, I will cooperate. And that's what Golos um, reports to Moscow. Now, Hemingway, even though he's a Soviet sympathizer, is still a pretty loyal American, and he's also a, his, what, he, what he sells, what his, his, his product is, a uniquely American style of literature. So uh, I think he realizes almost immediately, or you know, Mac, you you see this within months of the the recruitment. He goes, "Oh boy, I wonder if that was such a good idea." Mm-hmm. And and so he starts trying to back away from the Soviets. He still, as I say, he still admires them, but that extra step, you know, signing up with them, being recruited. Uh, signing the contract to buy the house, that's something he wants to put a little bit of distance. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to put a little bit of daylight between himself and the Soviets. So that's why he looks elusive to the Soviets. He, he, uh, um, he, he is elusive to them. But when they find him, when they catch up with him, uh, he, he says, sure, you know, I still like you guys. I, I, believe, I still believe in anti-fascism, and, and I'll, I'll get on it tomorrow. Um, 
except tomorrow never comes. And okay. In 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 the meantime, Ernest dedicates himself, as we mentioned earlier, to fighting as hard as he can on the American side, and that it's it's almost like um, it, it it's almost like he's compensating uh, for being with the Soviets or signing up with the Soviets. He's, it's almost like he's gone through a mental calculus of, oh, I, I, you know, I did this with them, but but now I'm going to do ten times as much for the American side. Huh. So, um, you know, and I, I have, I have, um, uh, he says these sort of things in his letters, and then you've got the pattern of what he did, uh, actually, that we discussed earlier, the submarine hunt, the, the work outside Paris. Uh, he looks at that as as putting it on the line for his government, and he refers to him as refers to himself as a secret agent of my government. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one uh, quote I believe comes from you is that uh, Hemingway and the the USSR Secret Service. It's a dramatic story, but no dramatic results. Uh I, I guess I'll I'll take your word for it. I don't know if I used exactly those words, but they they. The, the he he's not he's not a great spy for the Soviets, um, but I would say that signing up with the Soviets had a profound effect on his life um, because in the in the late forties and early fifties, at the time of the Red Scare in the U.S., he's looking over his shoulder the whole time. He's so so uh, Golos's lover. Uh, Elizabeth Bentley is one of the great witnesses uh, before Richard Nixon's committee there on the Hill uh, exposing Soviet espionage in the United States. Uh, And Hemingway's got to be saying to himself, um, I I don't have direct evidence, but I'm I'm pretty close on this. Uh, He's got to be saying to himself, God, I wonder if the next revelation is going to be, and and uh, and Mr. Nixon, you won't believe who else he recruited. So, um, you know, you see Hemingway making allusions mm-hmm. to this and distancing himself from uh, the anti-fascist cause and the um, and the Soviets themselves. He says in a letter, he says uh, in in the late 40s, he says, well, you know, I haven't seen a Soviet for, I haven't seen any Soviets. He tells one of his best friends, I haven't seen any Soviets for two years now. And it's on account of the the political climate mm-hmm. in in Washington. So, um, in, you know, in, the, 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 the long and the short of it is, um, this is an act with profound consequences for Hemingway's life, but not for the history of espionage. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't deliver the plans to the atomic bomb. Right. He doesn't. He doesn't tell the Soviets um, uh, what the U.S. response to the invasion of Korea is going to be. Right. Uh, nothing like that. But it's it's something that that bothers him, uh, arguably for the rest of his life. But he never was hailed before. Uh a government committee and accused of being a communist. He never was. He 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 thought he was on the verge. He thought the FBI was like one step behind him, uh, and he you know he said exactly that um, more than once. But in fact, the F, the FBI what did he work close? Um, one of the differences between my uh, analysis of this and previous books is 
previous books have said the FBI hounded him to death, uh, and they, they were there watching him the same way that they watched Martin Luther King or, or other people um, on the left. And um, that's just not so. Um, if you look at Hemingway's file, what you see is the FBI collecting – it's kind of passive collection. It's more like a clipping service – um, collecting bits and pieces of information about Hemingway, um, and and in the and but not actively surveilling or investigating him. Um, and at the a, after Hemingway commits suicide, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover writes a note to the file and basically says, you, you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway was a good guy. He was a rough, tough. A great American outdoorsman who always stood up for the little guy. Okay, Nicholas Reynolds, I'm I'm sorry, but we're just out of time. Nicholas Reynolds is author of Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, published by William Morrow. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.